had a funeral service Monday morning up at the Comfort, Texas, the mother of Walter Bielstein, Claire Bielstein, David, went to be with the Lord after 90 years, long life of devoted Christian service, and it was a wonderful time of victory for the family and celebration and sorrow commingled as they always are in such events. Coming back from there, I was uh, driving back to get back to Methodist Hospital to see some folks. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I got to thinking about something that happened in comfort many, many years ago in the early 60s. Some of you have been here long enough to remember we used to have, the church did, had a ranch up there called His Hill, a retreat center. Uh, Anne-Marie, I'm glad to see you here today and see you nodding your head. She was, uh, we had a, a, an encampment area up there on the Guadalupe, just outside of Comfort, called His Hill. Well, this was in the early 60s. We were having a youth retreat up there. And I was to speak on uh, Friday night or Saturday night. We had about 50 students there, high school kids. And I had worked on this and planned this. My devotion at the, what we call the campfire, you know, the Vesper service in the evening down by the river. Uh, I was going to bring the most incredible message of all time. I was going to bring us a message on the fire of God fire of God that fell when Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel and it consumed the offering there. The fire of God that fell on the apostles like tongues of fire at Pentecost and they preached. And how throughout the Bible fire is a symbol of the cleansing power of God and the power of God's presence. And so the whole emphasis was upon fire. And I was going to culminate with the burning bush, the experience of Moses out there in the wilderness when he had had to flee from Egypt because he had killed a man because this Egyptian was beating up on a, one of the Israelites and Moses came to the defense of that man and in the defense of him killed this fellow and so Moses had to leave. He had already forsaken the uh, life of the palace as we're told in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He had forsaken the life in the palace that was his as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he said he chose rather to identify himself with his people and with their needs and their problems and then he had to leave and flee for his life. And he got out there on the backside of nowhere and he ran into some shepherds that were keeping seven young girls from feeding and watering their sheep, the daughters, the seven daughters of Jethro. And so here Moses, obviously a man strong and powerful and energetic, came to the defense of those seven girls and ran those other shepherds off so that those girls could water their sheep. And out of that, he spent 40 years there then in that wilderness, God conditioning this man who already had a sense of justice, this man who already had a sense of right and wrong, this man who already had a sense of de de defending the defenseless. Isn't it interesting how God picked somebody like that to give the Ten Commandments to there on Mount Horeb? He was conditioned by his own thoughts and minds and heart to be able to be used by God. But out there he's caring for those sheep one day and suddenly a bush started burning and Moses recognized it for he heard the voice of God coming out of that bush saying, Moses, Moses, and Moses responded, here I am. Boy, that was going to be the climax of my sermon because I was going to conclude it with, here I am, but here's what was going to happen. Charlie Hamill, who was our minister of students at the time, and Jerry Mathis, who was our activities director at the time, we'd gotten together. And I'd collected, we'd collected a bunch of little kindling and had it there 
it kind of damp and green, but we thought it'd work anyway. We had it all piled down there right at, right at my feet. And we had a cable in the ground there beneath all that kindling, and it went to a tree about 15 yards away over there. And that cable ran down into the middle of this little pile of brush. Well, I had Jerry Mathis up there in that tree, and Charlie Hamill had come out there, and he would poured some lighter fluid there on that little brush. And Jerry was up there in the tree, and he had this pulley, and he had the, a rag attached to that pulley. And at the propitious moment, when I'd give him the signal, he was we had some lighter fluid on that rag. He was going to light that rag, and he was going to let it come down. Here the fire was going to come from heaven, right down into that, into that brush. And I'm going to say, and the fire of God fell. Boy, and here it came. Pow! That thing was going to blaze up there. And Moses was going to jump up and say, here I am. I'd say, God's calling you out of this fire. And I could just see every one of those kids going to the mission field. I knew it was going to be a, the miracle service of all time. <laughs> well, I got to that point in that message. And here came the fire. Jerry was right on, right on cue. Here came the fire. And he came right down there. And it was green and it was damp. And it just went, Psh! just a puff of smoke, just a brief blaze. Of, Whoa. So I said, you know, do it again. So he started pulling the thing back up. And Charlie sneaked out there on his knees, you know, and poured some more lighter fluid on there. And I tried to go back and revamp the sermon, you know. I treaded water there for a little while, trying to preach while Jerry got the rag back up there. He poured some more stuff on it, and he, I came to that point again, and I pointed at Jerry. I said, and at that time, the fire of God, well, here it came again. Then it went, second time, nothing. The three of us got down there pouring. We trying to make that thing work. We never did get that fire to burn. Never did. And those kids were sitting there, you know, kind of like, and I don't know what I did to try to rescue that message. It, that, that classic sermon of all time literally went up in smoke. That's all it happened. Puff. Nothing there. I got thinking about that event driving back from Comfort last Monday. And you know, and I was thinking about our church and our future, and it just dawned upon me that, you know, there are just some things we can't do without God. We can gather the kindling, we can make the plans, we can go through a lot of effort, we can make honest work, but unless God is in it, unless God's Spirit ignites it, by His own personal power and presence, as a result of the prayers and preparation of his people, all it's going to be is just a puff of smoke. There's just some things we can't do without God. And conversely, and I want to say a word about this, there's some things God can't do without us. Not that he is unable to do it, but it is in his providential planning he has ordered that you and I are to do some things that if we do not do them, his work will not be fulfilled. It is God's plan to use human instrumentality to accomplish his purpose. That's been his plan all along. It was his plan in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He was converted as the result of human instrumentality. The sermon and the witness of Stephen. And then he fell in the dust of the Damascus road, blinded by the fire of God's light. And then God spoke to him, and he spoke to God. And what did God tell him to do? God told him to get up and go into the city of Ananias, to the city of Damascus, and Ananias would come tell him how to be a Christian. Why didn't Jesus tell him on the spot? He was having a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus Christ. He recognized him. He said, Who are you, Lord? And 
Jesus answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Why didn't Jesus say, believe on me, trust in me, accept me? Because since his resurrection, he has committed unto us the message of reconciliation. You tell them, you tell them, you tell them. Even Jesus himself will not say what Paul later said in the Philippian jail, when the Philippian jailer fell down crying, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Human instrumentality, human agency in the work of God. Cornelius, a praying Gentile, wanted to know God, lived in Caesarea, and the angels of God appeared to him. And he said, I want to know the way of God. Why didn't they tell him the way of God? Why didn't they tell him about Jesus? Why didn't they tell him about salvation by grace? They didn't. Why? Because it was God's plan to use people. What did God's angels tell Cornelius? They said, Cornelius, send a, some of your servants down to Joppa to the house of Simon the Tanner, and in that house you will find Simon Peter, and that man will come tell you what to do to become a Christian. It is God's will, God's plan to use human instrumentality in and of and by itself. It is not enough, but that is part of God's providential planning. Jesus said it in the ninth chapter of John. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. We, he incorporates us into his purpose. Think of that. Think of what God is doing with us. We are part of his body. We are part of his bride. We are part of his temple. We are his messengers. We are his ambassadors. He says, we, we cannot do it without God and we can't do it without each other and God can't do it without you and without me and without us. We, he said, it's a corporate effort. It's a cooperative effort. We must, it's a compelling effort. Must. We must do it. You read that word or hear that word often on the lips of Jesus and of others. Even at 12 years of age in the temple, when he had been left there, his folks came back to find him, and they said, we were worried about you. Where were you? And he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? I must. Paul said, I must preach the gospel to them that are at Rome also. There are some things that you and I must do. The Holy Spirit has not rescinded the Great Commission. Jesus Christ has not canceled our marching orders. We are here to reach our city. We are responsible for this community. God has committed unto us that message of reconciliation, and we must do it. This staff has been thinking and praying for over a year about what we'll be talking about tonight, and many hundreds have already been talking about for weeks, and that is going to two Sunday schools. We're not doing that. We're not doing that because we're trying to get out of work. We're not recommending that and wanting to do that so we can do less. We're all committed to the Great Commission, and we take seriously the fact that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we, every one of us, are men and women under orders. We must do it. There are children that will not hear the gospel unless we have more Sunday school time and space provided with these two Sunday schools. There are young people that will not. 
There's single adults that will not. There are young couples that will not have the opportunity of the fellowship of this church. We're out of space, and if we do not go to two Sunday schools, we'll not have the opportunity to reach more people with the gospel. And that's our commission. That's what God expects us to do and has called us to do and has commissioned us to do. And I believe we must do it. Not for convenience, but for commitment. We must do it. We must. It's a compelling message and interest. We must work. It's work. You can bet your life it's work. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes prayers. It takes energy. Jesus said, my father works until now, and now I work. It's work, joyous work, exciting work, but it's work nonetheless. We must work. It's an active effort, and it's a brief effort. We must do it, for the night cometh when no man can work. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, September, November, the days dwindle on to a precious few. We must do it for the night cometh when not one of us will be able to work. It's brief. Robert Frost in that classic poem, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Miles to go before I sleep. There's some things that God can't do if we don't do it. And there are just some things that we cannot do without God. We can't even know God without his self-revelation of himself. We can't know God or ourselves without him. He takes the initiative. It is God who reveals himself to us. It is the great God of the ages who began to disclose himself to man, reveal himself to man, communicate himself to man. We were not seeking God. God was seeking us. And he was progressively revealing himself to man across the centuries. And that progressive and partial revelation continued until God came in fullness and in finality in the person of Jesus Christ. And we don't know God until we know Jesus Christ. Like until you know him through Jesus Christ. So we can't even know God. We can't know ourselves. The Bible says we're desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. The heart is, and who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts. We can't even look at ourselves. You have never seen your face. What you look at this morning in the mirror, you looked at a reflection of your face. You've never seen your face. It takes even an outside agency for you to see a reflection of it. We can never begin to see ourselves until we see ourselves reflected in, as the Scripture says, the face of Jesus Christ. Then we begin to see that we are loved and valuable because the great God of the ages loves us and gave himself for us.
We can't know God. We can't know ourselves. We can't know forgiveness. We can't forgive ourselves. Some of us have a difficult time forgiving ourselves even when we hear God say that we're forgiven. Let me, let me tell you what God says about your sin. He says that all of your sins and all of your transgressions are forgiven. He says that he has removed them as far as the east is from the west. He says that he has buried them in the depths of the sea and that he will remember them against you no more. We go on remembering them against ourselves and we go on remembering them against other people. But without God's grace and forgiveness, we wouldn't even have the knowledge of the fact that we are, our sins are forgiven, let alone let that truth be applied to our spirits and to our souls to give us that liberating, invigorating, vivifying experience of knowing that our sins are really gone. Dr. Perry Webb, pastor for so many years at the First Baptist Church here, told me this story many, many years ago about a man in the hospital who was dying, the nurses sent for a priest, thinking that the man maybe were Catholic and wanted to give him uh, extreme unction, the last rites. And the priest came, and the man was there and revived briefly and began to talk to the priest as the priest had already begun that, uh, that observance. And the man expressed his gratitude to the priest for coming. He said, I thank you, and God bless you for being here and for reminding me of the fact that my sins are forgiven. And that when I die, I'm going to meet the Lord. And he said, Father, let me have your hand. And he took the hand of the father, the priest, and he looked at the father's hand, and then he looked at his own hand, and he said, You know, Father, isn't it true that the only one who can ultimately and finally forgive us of all of our sins, must have nail prints in his hands. That's the visible historical proof of the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We're forgiven. We can't do it to ourselves. We can't even forgive others until we begin to have the Spirit of Christ overflowing in our hearts. Finally, we'll never know peace, real peace, peace that passes understanding without the peace that Jesus gives. There's just no peace like that. And I covet that for you this morning. If you don't have that peace of God, Life has its vicissitudes, its exigencies, its trials, troubles, tribulations, its valleys. But in the midst of all of that, God has promised peace for your heart. I came back to Methodist Hospital, as I mentioned at the start of this message a moment ago, and went to see some people, and somebody there that's just in such a desperate situation, physically, so ill, terminally ill, painfully ill. And uh, a night or two later, late this past week, I got a phone call at night. And I was asked to come back out to the hospital. I went out there to see this person. And at that time of night, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of traffic in the hospital corridors. We visited together for a while and prayed together. And I don't have time and 
you don't need to know all of the overwhelming circumstances involved in this situation. It's just catastrophic. And I just kept saying, oh, Lord, and we prayed together, oh, Lord, find a way to help and to heal and to restore and to give peace even in the midst of pain and trouble. And I was walking down the corridor of the hospital, going back to the garage, going back home, and I, I, was, I was really down. And I was walking along there, and I started preaching to myself out loud. I started talking to myself. And I was quoting some scripture out loud to myself, kind of mumbling. Have you ever been caught talking to yourself? It's, it's an embarrassing thing, but that happened. This person came along behind me, and I didn't hear them walking along there. This person said, are you practicing your sermon for Sunday, Buckner? I said, yeah, and I'm practicing it on myself. And turned around and looked into the face of a doctor, physician, not a member of this church. And I said, let me tell you what I'm talking about. I was talking about how to deal with pain and suffering and problems. And I said, sometimes the pain and suffering of the world just seems to overwhelm me and engulf me. And I know that does you and it does everybody at times. I said, what do you do? He said, I'll tell you what I do. And it was surely the word of God coming to me through this man. He said, why don't you, before you leave the hospital, go by the newborn ward down there where those little babies are that you can see through the window? Go down there and look. He left, and I went down there. I looked there at those little old babies. I thought of Avery, she's a little baby in there. Julia, little baby. Had her little skull caps on, you know, laying up there, kicking. And I looked down at those little things and I thought, that's God's vote for the future. That's God's way of saying, it's going to go on. Life's going to continue. And I didn't hear it audibly, but I said it to myself. Buckner, that's what God's been trying to do since the beginning. He set up a nursery down there in a manger in a little backwater town called Bethlehem so that the whole world could go in there and see that God cares and God comes and God shares and God saves and God forgives and God gives peace or you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save us from our sins. We can't do it without him but with him and in him and through him we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Would you trust him this morning? Follow him this morning? Come be a part of his church this morning? Come do what God is impressing you to do in response to the loving grace of God. We can't do it alone, but with him you can be more than conquered, even in some of the difficult, trying, testing experiences of life. I'll be right here. Why don't you come? From balcony, lower floor, wherever it might be. Want to join this church? Come. Just bring yourself. That's all that's needed. 
just yourself. Come, let's stand and let's sing.